Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For almost 500 years, locally fished cod was a regular source of food for the people of Newfoundland in Canada. Cod fisheries shaped the coastal towns, and fishing fueled their economies. You know, you had the people in the community, you had the people out on the ocean catching the fish, and then you had people in the beach who processed them when they came in. But now, I mean, the life of the community can go on, you know, never the twain shall meet. It all changed in 1992, when John Crosby, the country's fisheries minister, made an announcement. I'm making a decision based on the desire to ensure that the northern cod survives as a species. Commercial cod fishing was banned on Canada's east coast. This wasn't unexpected. Populations of cod had been in decline for decades, largely due to new technologies, such as the enormous super trawler fishing ships. By the 1990s, North Atlantic cod were on the brink of extinction. It's a similar story for many other fish species across the world's oceans. The World Bank reckons that 90% of the world's fisheries are being fished either at or over their capacity. But the world does need more fish to feed an ever-growing number of people. That means aquaculture, in other words, farming fish, is becoming increasingly important. This technology comes with its own problems, though. The way that fish are farmed today comes with a litany of environmental woes, not least pollution and waste. Aquaculture, therefore, needs some innovation. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science and technology editor. Today, we'll explore why changing the way that fish are sourced for food is becoming so critical. We'll investigate how to catch fish more sustainably in the oceans. And we'll look at a new type of aquaculture that can grow fish anywhere in the world, even on dry land. Guiding me through today's show is Abby Bertix, The Economist's science correspondent. Abby, thanks for joining me. I'm excited to be here. Now, you've been spending a lot of time thinking about the future of fishing. Tell me why you set off on this mission. Well, firstly, fish are a really important source of protein and nutrients for our world and in, to feed like the growing population. But I guess more importantly and selfishly, I was just kind of interested in fish. I became a pescatarian about six years ago, and I like to think on my moral high horse that it's for like environment and sustainability reasons, but I've always kind of had a question mark over fish. I, I just think they're delicious, but I also want to know whether they're 
actually sustainable and environmental in what's being done about them. Okay, that's interesting. So you eat fish because it's meant to be more environmentally sustainable, but of course it does have its own problems. Just outline what they are. Yeah, fishing actually has a lot of problems. So in terms of wild-caught fish, like the fish caught from the ocean, there are four main problems to it. The first is bycatch. So when you're catching the fish that you eat, you're also catching a bunch of other animals. There are some pretty horrible stats to hear about. Apparently around 40% of like all of the things caught in the ocean worldwide is unintentionally caught. And for certain species and certain types of fishing, this bycatch rate is worse than others. For example, shrimp, if you're trawling for shrimp, dragging like a net along the bottom of the ocean, you catch 5.7 pounds of other animals for every pound of shrimp that you catch. And what happens to these other animals? They are dying or dead. Often they're just kind of thrown back into the ocean. Not a great fate to be a bycaught fish. Okay. So, so not, not good for the uh, sort of fish environment there? No. And also some of these fishing techniques kind of can damage the ocean floor by dragging the nets and stuff on them. And the fisheries, sometimes they'll just throw nets or used equipment into the ocean, causing buildup of trash. Apparently the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is about 50% old used fishing nets. So yeah, wild-caught fishing is not great in terms of um, the environment. And perhaps most important, of course, people have been fishing too much. So just literally taking all the fish out of the sea. Yeah, overfishing is a huge problem. And this is partially because I, I guess like the main reason is humans are kind of greedy sometimes. We see a resource and we like to exploit it. And there have been a lot of instances of where we've been fishing. We've been fishing a certain fish, a certain population, and we just fish it too much. And this leads to vast like population overdecline, and it's really not good for that species. It can cause them to go endangered or extinct. Now, I, I suppose that this might be familiar to many listeners that we fish too much and that fishing has all these problems. But of course, a lot of people who are pescatarians like yourself um, like to find fish that are sustainably produced. Now, how does that work? So that there are there are ways to do this, of course. Yeah, I don't mean to be all a downer on wild-caught fishing. There are ways to do it sustainably. Some packets of fish will have a kind of MSC mark on it, and MSC is the Marine Stewardship Council, and what they do is they certify fisheries and fishing practices as, like, quote-unquote, sustainable or not. And if those packets have that mark on it, then you kind of have a little bit of knowledge that the practices that they're doing might be better than some of the alternatives. And to learn more about this, I spoke to George Clark. Um, he is the program director of MSC for UK and Ireland. He told me how the problem of overfishing has developed over the past few decades. Way back when, it used to be thought that you could exploit or catch as much fish as you wanted and it wouldn't really have an effect on much to do with anything in the ocean in the same way that people thought that they could um, litter uh, extensively and that wouldn't really have an effect. We know on both of those fronts that's a, a complete fallacy and, and highly problematic when we're trying to deal with things like ocean pollution, but also the need to sustain diets and livelihoods across the planet. So in the 70s, you would say that around 10% of wild fish stocks were, were overfished. And at the moment, it's over a third. So the direction, in spite of a lot of intense efforts over the past decades, you know, the dial's going in the wrong direction. To put that into context, with a population that's set to increase to, I think, 10 billion by 2050, we don't have enough fish to sustain that. 
Could you explain in, in simple terms what it means to be overfished? Overfishing is where you do not fish in a controlled and well-managed way. And over time, you deplete the reproductivity of that fish stock. And there's examples of where fish stocks have been overfished so much that they've actually come close to and in some cases collapsed altogether. And at that point, the fishery ceases to exist and there aren't those stocks available to catch and to sell and to eat. And that's a big, big problem. Why is fish so important of a food source? Fish is a supremely important protein. And I think fish is very often underrepresented. It can be a a very efficient, uh, environmentally friendly, low carbon protein, particularly wild caught fish. If we're able to manage our fish stocks more sustainably, we're able to produce more of this healthy, sustainable, nutritious protein. And actually, when you're facing health crises all across the world, including the UK, in an environment where we're eating just over half what the government recommends in terms of a healthy diet, I guess it's just important to reflect on why fish is important as food and also increasing the nutrients that people are able to access and enjoy in their diets and you know, reduce those negative health effects that are more and more prevalent these days than, than they ever have been. Today, how does overfishing look regionally? Are, are some places better than others? Yeah, I mean, it's not an um, issue that's unique to a particular place on, on the planet, to be honest. I think that the track record of what governments and organisations have been trying to do in the Northern Hemisphere or the developed world has been relatively good over the past couple of decades in terms of trying to attack that problem. And, and MSC, for us as an organisation, um, some of the most challenging areas are in those parts of the world, usually underdeveloped areas that don't have such strong management structures in place. However, it's not a new unique case to the developing world. There's examples of overfishing taking place in, in the Northeast Atlantic, for example, and, and mackerel is a very good example of where mismanagement can still occur in areas where you perhaps wouldn't expect it to be happening. So how do we fix this problem? What does sustainable fishing look like? So we look at the stock. That's, I guess, the kind of the core and the you know first principle of, of sustainability from MSC's point of view. So the fish stock has to be healthy and, and it has to be fished in such a way that maintains that health into the long term. The second principle is the overall environmental impact. So if I go out fishing with my net and I'm, I'm trying to catch hake, for instance, I might be catching other species like whiting and you know other fish that breed and exist in that area. The other considerations are how that type of fishing impacts marine habitats, um, endangered, threatened, protected species, bird life. And then the third, really, really important as well, is the management that's taking place. So what are the rules and regulations that that fishery has in place to ensure that any impacts on stock health that are you know, cropping up can be avoided and, and managed out, or indeed any um, negative effects um, environmentally can be um, addressed uh, through those management mechanisms. And those three principles form the sort of pillars of the standard, I guess. And so it's not a single species approach. It's not a single method approach. It's holistic. And do you have any kind of gold star examples of this working well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many to choose from. There's Cornwall in the southwest, um, two great example fisheries down there. You've got Cornish hake and you've got Cornish sardines, um, both of which have had uh, stock issues in the past. So, you know, the, the 90s really was a period of um, difficulty in terms of that overfishing challenge. 
And both those species in those areas were experiencing stock depletion. But over time, the management that has come into effect in those areas has resolved that, has grown the stocks back up to healthy levels, and, and they've both been MSC certified for some years now. And that is, you know, a great story um, for that local community. And as fish is, is such an important like nutrition source and demand for it is rising, in what ways is fish farming kind of a way to solve the overfishing problem? Yeah, there's two halves to the fish coin, if you like, quite conveniently. So currently half of, of the total fish production globally is from wild capture and half is from farmed or aquaculture production. And that tells you a bit of a story about where we are in terms of the, the global demand for seafood. If you look at the graph of that reality over the past few decades, you'll see that actually wild production has been relatively stable. It's had a few peaks and troughs for sure, but by comparison, aquaculture has, has rocketed up in terms of the total tonnage that it contributes to that total fish production around the world. So aquaculture or fish farming has to be part of the solution for sure. And so I, w- I would say, you know, going into the future, the opportunity to meet that ever-increasing appetite is through farming. But actually, we published some research recently that showed that if you manage that third of um, overfish stocks that is current figure globally, if you manage those in a sustainable manner, you could actually replenish, improve stocks, create more healthy fish stocks, and, and increase the contribution of wild fishing by around 16 million tonnes, which is substantial. So I think that there are solutions in both areas, but of course we need to tackle them in a environmentally positive manner, not just you know turbocharged production and forget about those risks and those impacts that can be borne out of both wild fishing and aquaculture. Awesome. Well, George, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Abby, so George there talked about how to improve fishing in the wild, make it more sustainable, make it more environmentally friendly. And that mainly involves the better management of fisheries. But of course, that can take a long time, for, especially for fish populations in the wilds, to get back to their sort of healthy levels. But he also mentioned fish farming at the end. And of course, this is an important way that many of the fish we eat are grown. So talk to me about what that looks like. What does a fish farm look like? So fish farming is a practice that goes back millennia. It's been around for a long time. But the goal of a fish farm is to kind of preserve the natural ocean environment and kind of cordon off the fish, keep them somewhere else, like you might an animal farm or a plant farm. And you grow your fish in that farm and it's kind of separate. There are multiple different types of fish farms that we have. You can farm fish in ponds. You kind of dig divots in water, the tide comes over, fills with water, and you can grow shrimp in there or other types of fish. There are sea pens or sea cages. These are kind of just floating nets in open ocean where you keep the fish in that net, you feed them, and the water cleans and circulates due to the ocean current itself. And then there's another type of kind of inland farming system that's called a flow-through or a raceway. And what those are is it's essentially kind of mimicking a river. You have a tub of a fish tank and you're just flowing water through it. You're just taking a section of the river, you're moving it off into your farm and you're flowing clean water in and then the dirty water is just coming out the end. Now, farming uh, in general uh, across the world, whether it's fish or anything else, has its advantages, of course. You grow more food, you can feed more people in the world and that's great. But of course, as we know with farming on land... uh, (laughs) 
that I'm sure that fish farming itself has has problems too. So can you outline some of those for me? Yeah. So fish farming, while it does allow the wild fish to live their wild fish lives, theoretically, it does pollute the ocean. It can pollute rivers because if you have this fish farm, the water has to come from somewhere and the water has to go to somewhere, which means you're taking in clean water and you're putting out dirty water. And the dirty water can be dirty due to uneaten feed. There can be fish feces. Sometimes fish escape. That's actually a really big problem in the salmon farming industry. If there's a giant hole in the tank, like millions of fish can escape. And then all of a sudden you have these farmed fish who are kind of genetically different from the wild caught fish. And they can alter the ecosystem. They can breed with the wild fish and cause really big problems. Another issue that we have with fish farming is, or this is more like a difficulty that fish farmers run into, is that because there are a lot of fish in close proximity, there's a huge risk of disease and parasites. This often requires, especially with salmon farming and shrimp farming, a lot of antibiotics that you have to use just to ensure that these fish don't get sick because they're so close to each other. And this is very similar, of course, to cattle herds or sheep farming or anything else where huge numbers of animals have to be kept in relatively small confines so that they don't get uh, sick, um, um, chicken farming, all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, when we think about sort of um, intensive farming um, for, for these other purposes, we, people often get concerned about how humane the conditions are for the animals. I mean, how whether they're suffering or anything else. I mean, what do we know in terms of that for, for fish farming? Yeah, so there there are a lot of questions about um, the humanity of kind of raising animals and slaughtering them and eating them. And fish farming is not unique in that situation. And this is why I was really curious about looking into some like newer technologies that are being applied to fish farming. Okay, so you've been traveling all over the world to explore how fish farming technology is being adopted. Um, I mean, you've, you've gone to California, to Norway. Uh, t- tell me what you found. Right. So I was looking at a specific type of fish farming technology, um, and it's called recirculating aquaculture systems, or RAS for short. And this essentially allows you to take the fish farm and separate it from the environment even further. It's kind of all self-contained, like a giant aquarium tank, and it lets you have more control over the fish's environment and hopefully better control over what they're eating and how they're doing. And my investigation started in California, about like 15 minutes from downtown L.A., at a shrimp farm called Transparency. But this is an old building from the 50s and 60s. They used to actually make parts for the Apollo spacecraft in here. Steve Sutton is the co-founder of Transparency. Inside the warehouse, you can see like six, seven, eight tanks. The smell is Mildly fishy, but not overwhelming, and there's kind of this loud hum of generators. I'll show you that real quick, and then we can go down the farm and start to look at the shrimp and the tanks they grow in. Cool, sounds good. Let's go. Steve's shrimp farm, it's relatively small. Last year, it was harvesting around 600, 800 pounds of shrimp a week. At max capacity, it might even be able to bang out around 2,000 pounds, which... In L.A., that might be enough for local businesses, local farmer's market, but in the grand scheme of things, it's still a relatively small farm. I I don't know what I was expecting seeing a shrimp farm, but I I guess this is kind of expectations. It's really clean. It's kind of modular, right? There are all these little shrimp. Oh, these ones are cute. They're a little smaller. These are like pinky finger shrimp. Well, if you like these, they're going to get even cuter because there's even smaller ones coming up. So (laughs) these guys will be harvested in a couple weeks. 
There's two tanks full. Each tank's got about 25,000 shrimp in there. Super cool. Um, one thing that keeps distracting me as you're talking is that these shrimp sometimes like to just launch themselves out of the water and they, they, they can jump. Um, like, they'll jump like a foot. Is that normal for shrimp, yeah? Yeah, so they're in here swimming around. There's a little current. Um, they'll bump into something, they'll bump into each other, they'll bump into the wall, and they, you know, they're kind of spiky, but they'll bump into something and they'll jump out of the water. They also may be jumping in order to grow. But we weren't here to just watch the shrimps. Steve walked me through the system that farms these fish. We're standing in the part where you just enter the production space. The production space at this farm is 16,000 square feet. This is kind of the area where all the filtration happens. Uh, it's kind of the magic to what we do compared to some other farmers is that we filter the water in specific ways so that we return oxygenated, clear, clean water back to the shrimp. Typically, shrimp farms that are based in ponds rely on the tide to flow in and remove the dirty water and bring new clean water in that keeps the shrimp healthy. These RAS systems, though, they grow on land, so it's not like there's going to be a tide sweeping in with fresh water. So instead, you have to continuously clean and recycle the water in the tanks. You can see these, these three here, these are our pumps. So that's what distributes the water back to the shrimp tanks. And then it returns by gravity. Uh, and then it goes through a series of filters here. So there's a filter that'll turn on over there occasionally, you may hear. Um, Rass farms are kind of in essence, they're bigger versions of home aquariums. There are two main components to this system. There's a tank in which the fish or the shrimp swim. And then there's the second part, which is the kind of more industrial part, which cleans the water. And this uses a set of components which will dispose the waste, clean the water, and add back in oxygen. This technology is really based off of technology used in the wastewater treatment industry. We remove the physical solids from the water. We use a biofilter to dissolve the wastes from the shrimp so that anything that's toxic that they produce from eating and digesting isn't uh, left in the water. Then we uh, remove carbon dioxide, we add oxygen, and we do a little sterilization and the water goes back around. So it's going around 12 to 15 times a day. And this is the area that kind of drives all of that. The water filtering and recycling and cleaning machinery was incredibly loud, but there was good reason for that. We are getting municipal water and we reuse over 99% of that. And then whatever we top off is adding for replacement of evaporation. So that's more municipal water. We discharge a small amount of water into the sewer, less than 1% of, of our total water volume. And that's monitored by LA County. So in the future, we have plans to not discharge any water and actually create some fertilizer for farmers. That's a really important and I think really interesting point. Ras farms make use of the fact that waste in fish farming isn't actually waste. In fact, one of the scientists that I talked to refused to refer to the fish poop and leftover food as waste. He said it's incredibly valuable. And the farms can be designed to capture the valuable nutrients in this so-called waste and use them for other purposes. As Steve mentioned, one use is fertilizer in agriculture. Because Ross farms are separate entities, they're kind of contained systems, this means that it's harder for pathogens to get in and spread around. 
And because they're a closed system, if, if pathogens get in, they'll probably spread really fast. And this is why RAS Farms biosecurity is really important. There are like tarps over the tanks and you have to be sure to maintain a sterile and clean environment for the fish to grow in. At Transparency, Steve's ethos is no pathogens and no antibiotics. This farm was meant to be a, a proof of concept. It's a good-sized warehouse, but I mean, this is a very small shrimp farm in the, in the grand scheme of things. But this nursery receives 17-day-old shrimp from one of a few farm partners we have that hatch the shrimp. So we get about eight small boxes once every two to three weeks if things are going well for them. And they spend three weeks in our nursery. Then they get tested for viruses and bacteria that are known to be pathogens to shrimp so that we make sure we're not introducing anything into this part of our farm. But RAS shrimp farming, it's not just about providing a clean source of protein for humans to eat. There are also environmental considerations. We've lost 50% almost of the world's mangroves in 45 years. And uh, a good portion of that, estimated anywhere from 25 to 35% of that, is due to shrimp and fish farming from the expansion in the 80s and 90s. So for us, we're like, hey, we can't use any more mangroves than we already have because those are the number one sequestration machines of taking carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere. So let them do what nature does. Let's us figure out a way to use space more efficiently. The experts at Transparency, they're using everything they've learned in this old warehouse, and they plan to build a RAS facility somewhere else that is more than 10 times larger. But that's the future. I wanted to see somewhere where RAS is being done on a larger scale today. So I traveled all the way to Norway, to a place within the Arctic Circle, on the shores of a fjord. I'm Abby. Hi, Abby. Nice to meet you. Salt and Smolt is one of the most advanced farms in the world. They had their technology provided by a RAS technology provider called Pure Salmon Technology. And inside of its 7,000 square meter main building are tanks capable of producing 8 million juvenile Atlantic salmon, or smolt, every year. How do you get the smell of fish feed? Yeah. Um, smells delightful, actually. <laughs> John Solibrant, Salton Smoltz production manager, walked me through their Just, farming um, process. Their These are my size. Yeah. Right, we, we put on some crocs <laughs> to walk down to the smolt facility. Yeah, we've seen the, the hatchery trace. So how, how many eggs do you like get in at a time? How many eggs can fit in this room? We will now get uh, two million eggs into... The, the process starts with the eggs. There's this room with kind of... It looks like there could be ovens, but there are trays of eggs in the hatchery. And once they grow big enough, they get slooped over to a larger circular tank where they grow from babies to kind of toddlers, I guess. And from there, they go from tank to tank getting larger and larger feed in each tank that's like appropriate to how big and how old they are. And towards the end of the process, when they're almost fully grown smolt, they get vaccinated. Here we have the vaccination room. So that's machines over there are two vaccination machines. So this is cool. We can vaccinate 20,000 fish an hour. So that's quite 
fast. And they have to get vaccinated because this is a smolt farm. And these smolt will end up going in the ocean where it's actually important for them to be protected against disease. One of the most important parts of this RAS smolt farm is on water usage. Traditional farming, particularly the inland flow-through ones, which kind of mimic rivers by just passing water through tanks, they're incredibly demanding on water supplies. And this matters a lot, especially when you're using fresh water, which could be used by humans or for other purposes, or just to kind of keep the river a river. So as we've already explored, RAS farming can reduce water usage by large amounts, like up to 99%. And in Norway, there's extra incentive to reduce this water usage. And this incentive is in the form of regulation. Using fresh water supply and usage and permitting is very, very limited, and it's expensive to get a permit. So they're definitely trying to incentivize less of a water impact on the environment in this way. And the impacts of this legislation and regulation are already being felt. In fact, around half of smolt farms now in Norway use RAS, and this has been a huge driver to refining and improving the technology. And in the future, it might even become more so. Norway has levied a pretty hefty tax on offshore salmon farming, around like 35 or 40 percent. So if this actually holds, it'll be huge incentive for salmon farmers to move the rest of their farm off of the ocean and onto land. It's not just Norway who's hopping on the RAS bandwagon. There are loads of larger RAS facilities on the scale of like 10 to 20,000 tons a year cropping up around the world. So there's one operating in Florida by Atlantic Sapphire right now. They've had a little bit of growing pains, but they're proving that RAS is feasible at scale. And there's lots of other farms cropping up in Japan, a lot in design in the Middle East and elsewhere throughout the world. We'll hear more from Abby shortly. Recirculating aquaculture systems, or RAS, sound like an interesting technology for the future of fishing, but next we'll explore what hurdles still need to be overcome if RAS is to become more ubiquitous. And we'll explore whether such technologies really can make a big enough impact on the way we get our fish. That's all coming up. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Today on Babbage, we're exploring the future of fishing. Earlier on, my colleague Abby Bertix explained why recirculating aquaculture systems, or RAS, look promising. But as with any new technology, that's not the whole story. So Abby, 
Take us through the challenges with RAS. When you described them earlier, they sounded like a pretty good solution to, you know, the way to grow these fish, which is sustainable and everything. So uh, what are some of the problems? The biggest problem boils down to money. Because RAS essentially recreates the ocean on land, it's pretty expensive to build and also expensive to operate. So a lot of the research is trying to figure out how to make RAS profitable at a very large scale. The thing is, if you have like a small farm, then it's going to cost a lot of money to build the thing. It's going to cost a lot of money to get the energy to do the thing. And you're not going to have enough fish or product to kind of be able to offset those costs. It is more expensive in terms of money and energy generally to grow the fish. There's an interesting trade-off actually involved in that it, it costs more energy to run the farms because you have to have the energy to cool the water, to filter the water, to pump the water around. But because these systems allow you to grow fish pretty much wherever you want to, there's reduced energy cost of transportation. So there was this company called Pure Salmon, and they did this analysis that showed that if you had a RAS farm in Japan, it would actually cost less energy to have the salmon grown in Japan, even though it's using RAS, which is more expensive, than it would to grow the salmon in Norway using the ocean, using less energy, but then having to kind of fly it over to Japan to eat. That makes a sort of intuitive sense, I suppose, because uh, as you say, a lot of this food is flown around, frozen and, and all of that. So having it grown closer to where it's eaten is probably a better you know, taste experience too as well. Yeah, I mean, so when I was in LA, I got to try some of the shrimp and the shrimp at the farm are all sold within like 15 miles of where they're grown. And that's pretty unique for shrimp because I'm pretty sure over 90% of shrimp in the US are imported and it's just cool to kind of add to that local agriculture and aquaculture movement. And there definitely is kind of a niche market who really appreciates that sort of thing. RAS might also change the types of fish that are available for people to eat in different markets. Like it, it will make fresh shrimp available in, in California. I know there are salmon farms under development kind of in the Middle East where before it would have to be shipped from Norway, but you're having local salmon grown. And in terms of food security, this is a huge plus. Matt Craze, who's a consultant in aquaculture at Spheric Research, he was talking to me about how demand is changing in America and how RAS might be able to kind of help with that. Americans before COVID would only eat salmon really in a restaurant. And actually, salmon's dead easy to cook, right? I mean, you, you just literally put a pan on and it's like it takes you know less than 10 minutes. And people just figured that out during the lockdown and they started eating a lot more of it and so the the home or retail demand shot up during covid and, and essentially you have much more demand than supply and so you have like norway for example that's traditionally just supplied europe well some of that salmon now is even going to the states so you need either land-based or you need the industry to go offshore or you need to find some way of reinventing CPEN to the extent that you take out the biological risks and, and you improve its environmental performance. And also, you know, somewhere like America, which is a huge continent, I mean, all of the central part of America, you, you can imagine having these things there and whoever wants to eat fish in those places will have pretty fresh produce. It's uh, quite interesting to think about. Now, on your trip to California and Norway, you explored how RAS could work with shrimp and salmon. But in theory, does this technology work for any fish? 
Yeah. So it theoretically does because it lets you kind of recreate the ocean and you can make that ocean or the river. You can use fresh water, you can use salt water, you can use cold water, you can use warm water. But it does work better for some fish than others. Certain fish kind of are okay with a lower water quality. They're more resilient. Those types of fish are like catfish and tilapia. It also really depends on how the fish like to act, their demeanor. So for tuna, ras does not work very well. Tuna are big, they're strong, they're powerful. And if you try to farm them in a small system, sometimes they'll just swim as fast as they can, they'll get spooked, and they'll ram headfirst into the wall or into the cage. And that is not very conducive if your fish are just trying to ram out of the cage all the time. Doesn't produce good quality fish. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But there are other fish like grouper, which naturally like crowding together. And then also there's the other component to this is how much can you sell these fish for? So um, some people think that for ras, which kind of costs a little more money to operate, it makes the most sense to sell high value fish like yellowtail or salmon. But some of the companies that are doing this type of farming think that ras also has the potential to go beyond the high value fish. David Cahill, the global head of production at Pure Salmon, told me why. We're still a way to go where you can use a RAS system to produce low value fish effectively and supply local markets with protein at a cheap cost. And I think the reality is that most RAS systems and certainly the sort of RAS systems that we're working with only really are economic with the higher value species. And I'd like to see a time when we could produce lower value fish for a bigger market and a bigger benefit to the growing populations in the world. I think we need to simplify the technology and reduce the cost of the technology. So I I think, Ras, it's still a relatively new technology and scientists and fish farmers are experimenting. So we're still not really sure what all of the possibilities are and how it will be used in the future. But there's a lot of opportunity. So it sounds like there's a lot of potential. I mean, Abby, is it also potentially possible to grow fish that have you know, become almost extinct in the wild? Yeah, I was talking about this with Matt Craze, and he was saying that it could even be possible to bring back a really delicate type of halibut called the Atlantic halibut. The Atlantic halibut became almost extinct in the northeast of the US. It's a really amazing fish. And mostly what's left now is the Pacific halibut, which is a nice fish, but it's a less delicate fish than the Atlantic. Now there's only a little bit left in Greenland. You can bring back these kinds of species using rats. If you can figure out how to grow them in a rat system, I mean, you can bring back things that people used to love in the past. So it's got this really cool kind of component to it. Well, all of this sounds exciting. And and listening to your reporting, I mean, one thing that keeps coming back into my mind is if you've got huge numbers of fish crammed into relatively small tanks, is there a welfare question that we should be asking? And are the people who, you know, build these new types of fish farm, are they questioning those things as well? Yeah, that was one of my huge concerns as well. When you go to like the shrimp farm or a salmon farm, you can see the shrimp and the salmon in the water. There's kind of a lot of them. It's not like your home aquarium where there might be one or two fish in like a few liters of water. But I've spoken to like a few welfare experts on fish. And for salmon especially, when they're spooked, when they're nervous, what they like to do is they like to swarm. They like to swim in schools. 
they actually prefer swimming close together. And sometimes their reasoning was like a little bit reductionistic. They would say, okay, if the fish are growing, if they're thriving, if they're growing well, that means that they're doing well inside. I mean, that could be true, I suppose, but it's, it's not necessarily causative, right? It's not necessarily causative. And what experts have spoken to me about, just it still seems better than, than what I've seen in terms of factory farming on land for animals. Well, like any new technology, I'm guessing that as more of these get grown and more scrutiny is put on them, that these kinds of questions will come up. I mean, another environmental challenge is surely how much energy that these RAS systems use. Because as you say, heating or cooling the water, you're pumping it around, you're feeding nutrients, there's pollution in terms of the chemicals and other waste from the fish. How do you start to quantify all of that? So... It is a really big problem, and it's um, something that people mention a lot. One way that experts like to think of this is there is more energy being used to pump the water, to filter it, to recirculate it, but there's also less water being used. So if you kind of have a freshwater RAS system, it's recirculating up to like 99.9% of the water. And say you're kind of on a river somewhere or say you are using hydroelectric power, or wind power, or solar power, depending on how green your grid is, sometimes that's a trade-off that is worth it and willing to make, especially if you're in a very water-scarce region. So RAS is still a relatively early stage technology, and even though there are multiple examples around the world. But to scale it up, where does the technology go from here? How does it become a major source of uh, our fish in the future? Well, one of the huge selling points of RAS is kind of that there, there was a precision agriculture revolution a few years ago um, where you're able to better control things, to yield better output and make things more efficient. And RAS is kind of going to allow this to happen, but for aquaculture, so precision aquaculture. And because RAS is still kind of costly, there are kind of approaches that are halfway between traditional fish farming and RAS. So one step along the way, basically. Yeah, one step down the ladder towards precision and control. These are called hybrid approaches, and they might recirculate half the water, but at much lower cost. Matt Craze told me more about that type of farming. There is something called hybrid flow-through, which partially recirculates the water, but it doesn't recirculate all of it. It's like 60 or 70% recirc. And these flow-through companies are a lot more effective, but they're not filtering out all of the water. So the sustainability claim of that company is arguably not as high as it is with a, a full recirculation facility. It's almost saying we're going to be almost clean. <laughs> so these compromises mean that it's cheaper and less risky, the technology, because you're not as heavily invested in recreating the entire ocean yourself. It means that scared and cautious investors are more likely to take the jump. Okay, so Abby, we've talked about overfishing, which is why fish farming in these new ways is interesting. Now, is RAS the answer then? Do you think that the demand for fish, which is growing around the world, can ever be met by these sorts of new technologies in a sustainable way? I think it definitely it has to be part of the answer. We've seen over the past decades that the amount of fish that we can get from the ocean is kind of leveled off, right? Like we can't get more out of our oceans without completely destroying it. Maybe we can get a little bit more, but not a bunch. All of the gain over the past 50 years um, in terms of the fish we've been eating comes from fish farms. And now we're kind of seeing a growing awareness of the environmental like effects of these fish farms. And we, we see a growing like little sliver of the industry that is going to RAS. And I really do think that that sector is going to continue to grow, especially as we make that technology more efficient and we figure out how to better do it in a more sustainable way. 
Abby, thank you very much for that. And of course, people can read all of your reporting on the future of fishing by subscribing to The Economist. Listeners can get a month of digital content for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Abby, uh, while I have you here, why don't you tell me about something you've been reading in The Economist that you've particularly liked? So I read our language column, which talked about gesture and how it's important in communication and language learning. And some people who speak certain languages move their hands around a lot, probably, and some just don't. <laughs> I think there's even an anecdote about how if you um, tie an Italian's uh, hands behind their back, it'll silence them. Well, Abby, thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for taking me through your excellent story today. Thank you, Alec. Our thanks to George Clark and all of the people that Abby spoke to in her reporting. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.